Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing trusted third parties. That means we'll get into the FTX blow up, discuss what happened there. We'll talk about what trusted third parties are and why not to trust third parties. We'll talk about the trusted third party hierarchy of who is most and least reliable. And also the asset class hierarchy as far as which assets you can truly own yourself versus which ones you need a trusted third party, and also how to minimize exposure to trusted third parties. And then at the end, we'll get into the future scenarios, the worst case, best case, and most likely future scenario. Sound good? Sounds great. Awesome. All right. Well, let's start with the FTX blow up and talk about what happened there. So there's obviously a lot of information still coming in. So this is just very high level and information could change. But basically, the fourth largest crypto exchange in the world, FTX, just filed for bankruptcy, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So a lot of people that had their funds on FTX, especially crypto traders, uh, essentially lost everything or they might get some portion of their funds back down the road, but it's certainly not looking good. And so the first question is, how did this actually happen before we get into the implications? And from my perspective, it looks like Basically, this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF, created his initial wealth by through a trading firm called Alameda Research, and he used arbitrage for the Bitcoin price in various regions and various exchanges. So the price of Bitcoin might be a little bit higher in the US and a little bit lower in Hong Kong, for instance. So he would buy the lower cost Bitcoin in Hong Kong, sell it in the US, and then take the difference. And so that was a nice arbitrage that worked well for his trading firm and for another of other trading firms to find price discovery for Bitcoin. After a while, he then also created FTX, which was his own exchange. And this is probably a more longer term business model because a trading firm, generally those price differences get minimized over time. But if you create a great exchange that could last for longer in theory. And Binance, uh, CZ from Binance was actually one of the investors in FTX early on. But the point where it really started to go haywire, where I started to see some red flags and other Bitcoiners saw some red flags, was when Sam Bankman-Fried created his own token, FTX token, also called FTT. And he would offer yield on holding this token. So you'd get a certain percentage just by holding this token. You'd also have discounts on trades in the FTX platform if you use the FTT token. And this to me was like the first the first time, you know, in the story where I was like, okay, I'm not touching FTX with a <laughs> thousand foot pole. Um, but a lot of people still trusted it. Things were going well for a while. They were had a major Super Bowl commercial. They had people like Tom Brady and Giselle who stored their wealth in FTX. And there was a commercial with Larry David. And so from most people's perspective, it's like, oh, this is one of the new big exchanges that's reliable and trustworthy you know tom brady uses it it's in the super bowl and then when things really started to unravel is when the luna collapse took place so if you recall you know several months ago one of the biggest stable coins in the world terra luna which was had a 60 billion dollar market cap at the time basically went under and it went under because this was a token that was printed out of nothing it was an algorithmic stable coin and it started to depeg, and then it hit this downward spiral. And because it wasn't actually backed by anything, 
it basically went to zero. And this not only took down Terra Luna, but it took down Three Arrows Capital, Celsius, a lot of these other companies that had counterparty risk against Luna, or they held a lot of Luna on their balance sheet. And so Alameda, the trading firm that SBF ran, also suffered under this Luna collapse. And the time where many people are saying that SBF crossed the Rubicon of like the point of no return was when he actually used FTX's funds to bail out his trading firm that was underwater, Alameda Ventures. And so this is one of the biggest no-nos you can do is to actually take customer funds that they believe is being held safely for them on the exchange and use it for something else. Use it to bail out your other business, use it to make risky investments that might go to zero, use it with leverage. And CZ from Binance, who had invested in FTX early on, started to see some of these red flags emerging. And he had sold his equity stake in FTX. And just a few days ago, he tweeted, quote, as part of Binance's exit from FTX equity last year, Binance received roughly $2.1 billion equivalent in cash, Binance USD and FTT token. Due to recent revelations that have come to light, we have decided to liquidate any remaining FTT tokens on our books. So this was when FTX started to collapse because basically mm -hmm. CZ from Binance realized, hey, this whole empire is built on sand. Like the biggest asset FTX mm -hmm. has is their own token. They printed out of nothing and <laughs> we don't want that risk. So we're going to sell our FTT tokens. And this is when FTX started to totally collapse. They've now halted withdrawals. They've filed for chapter 11. And the interesting thing is that Binance itself also has its own token, BNB, that it printed out of nothing as its biggest asset on its balance sheet. And it's the same exact thing that happened to Luna. Luna printed out its own token out of nothing and then collapsed. And by the way, fiat currencies have done this all throughout history. Like in Weimar, Germany, they created their own currency out of nothing to try to stop some major losses. So it's it's the same you know, same thing we've experienced over and over and over again. And the biggest lesson I take away is don't trust third parties. <laughs> uh, but yeah, curious to hear your takeaways or, uh, or lessons from this whole unraveling. Yeah, I was I was going to draw some parallels between what's going on in uh, FTX and, you know, central banks. There's <laughs> there's a lot of money printing going on the you know, if if the U.S. government's biggest asset is its own currency and whenever it needs, whenever its debt is denominated in that currency and it needs to get itself out, hey, let's just print a little bit more of that and uh, it'll all be good. That's, you know, that's, exactly. what, that's, that's, and that's what exactly what happened in 2008 with the housing mm -hmm. crash. There was a major hole in the world's balance sheet. And rather than let that let those businesses fail as a healthy free market economy would, the mm -hmm. U.S. government basically plugged the hole by printing money. And this is precisely why Bitcoin was created after the 2008 crash. In fact, in the very first two sentences of the Bitcoin white paper, he talks about the need to get away from trusted third parties. So he mm -hmm. says, a purely peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. Digital signatures provide part of the solution, 
but the main benefits are lost if a trusted third party is still required. So he, he makes it totally clear. It's like the first two mm -hmm. sentences. And then when he actually debuted Bitcoin on the uh, cryptographic newsletter, he said, quote, I've developed a new open source peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system called Bitcoin. It's completely decentralized with no central server or trusted parties because everything is based on crypto proof instead of trust. And then he, yep. and then he also, you know, in the very next paragraph, he talks about why there's always this recurring problem again and again with people trusting their assets and then it getting rug pulled from them. Where the next mm -hmm. sentence he says, the root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. The central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency, but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. So it seems to me like anyone who got caught with their pants down in the FTX debacle hasn't read the mm -hmm. Bitcoin white paper or hasn't, you know, hasn't absorbed what it really means and what it means mm -hmm. to not trust third parties and why this is so important to realize. So that's why we're creating this episode today is to really drill home this lesson of why you shouldn't trust third parties. Uh, but mm -hmm. I, what are your what are your thoughts on just, you know, the reality of third parties and like, why do people still trust third parties after all, after Luna, you would have thought they're not going to trust things like FTX or BlockFi. Yeah. So I, I just started reading Neuromancer in the last few days and within the first handful of pages case, the main character is, you know, realizing the precariousness of his situation as being a, a middleman you know, in, in the drug market. And his his whole, he, he had this quote, he said, a middleman's business is to make himself a necessary evil. And mm. I feel like that's essentially what these third parties are. Like it, they're becoming a necessary evil or they, they position themselves as a necessary evil in a way. They might not view themselves as evil, but ultimately what's what's the point if there's a technology that gets rid of the the third party you know that yeah it's, yeah it's pretty <laughs> parasitic in nature or some people mm -hmm. will call it rent seeking where yeah. they try to just be this middleman who can just extract rent from the people without necessarily providing great value mm -hmm. and i always go back to nick zabo one of the fathers of cryptography who was heavily influential in bitcoin being developed, he wrote this famous essay called Trusted Third Parties Are Security Holes. And this is something I think people don't realize. Like in the US, we have KYC laws, know your customer. And it seems like mm -hmm. a good thing. Like, oh, we're going to prevent money laundering by making sure mm -hmm. everyone has to give their information. You have to give your email, your social security, whatever else, your banking information. But this creates honeypots. And if you have a honeypot, of everyone's private information all on some ancient government server or some new crypto server that doesn't have oversight, there's a big risk in your funds being hacked, your personal information getting leaked, and mm -hmm. you, your, your own wealth being drained. And so trusted third parties are security holes. And if you can minimize your surface area of security risk by not trusting third parties, you'll be far mm -hmm. better off and in this essay, he talks about 
the differences between different types of third parties. And he basically says that new trusted third parties are costly and risky, but they're also tempting because they tend to offer a greater yield or some new thing that's not offered by the more legacy trusted third parties. But Mm -hmm. legacy trusted third parties that have stood the test of time are actually valuable or at least more valuable than the newer ones. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, think about like Visa or MasterCard or Wells Fargo. They're far Mm -hmm. less likely to go down than, you know, FTX or Binance or Ethereum or like one of these brand new trusted third parties. So ideally, Mm -hmm. you don't have to deal with any trusted third parties at all, but there is a hierarchy of risk. So maybe we can talk about what this hierarchy is. There's just a, there's a scale. It's a spectrum of how much you can trust third parties. And there's also, you know, a benefit of trusting third parties in some cases where there are economies of scale, right? Like it's, it's sometimes difficult and a little overwhelming to handle everything yourself, right? So like (laughs) if you had to be your own payments processor and, you know, there are, there are ways around this with different kinds of monetary systems like Bitcoin, but like there's definitely a a use case. And historically, especially there's been a use case for this before the technology has advanced far enough to be able to handle, you know, these kinds of decentralized systems. Yeah, totally. I think you're right that the main reason people still rely on trusted third parties is it is convenient. You don't have to know anything to hold your Bitcoin on Coinbase or to hold your cash in the bank. It's just something that's offloaded. It's not part of what you have to think about or care about. Those are the reasons why people trust third parties, but they I don't think people tend to consider what risks they have by giving up custody of their own assets. Mm-hmm. So I would say as far as the hierarchy, the US government is the top of the hierarchy. And there's a reason they call bond interest rates, the risk-free rate, because pretty much all global debt is denominated in U.S. dollars. And so if there's ever an issue where the U.S. government needs more U.S. dollars to fund the yield of bonds, they will create more dollars and they will fund those yields. So it is kind of a risk-free rate in the sense that the government has, the U.S. government has never not given a bond payment. Like every single Mm -hmm. time they've never defaulted on a payment or a debt obligation. They always pay the interest on the debt. And there's no reason why they wouldn't, because just like how Sam Bankman-Free could print up FTT tokens out of nothing, the U.S. government can print up dollars out of nothing. But Mm -hmm. the risk is just like how FTT tokens can go to zero, eventually U.S. dollars could go to zero. And so that yield that you're getting on your government bonds might actually be worthless in real terms. Yeah. What kind of liquidity crisis would cause the U.S. to default? Is that if you know the rest of the world kind of has a coordinated attack on the U.S. dollar? Or would it, like, is that the only thing that could do it? Or is there just some random market forces that might be able to take down the U.S. dollar? Well, as long as everyone's using the U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. It's the U.S. is pretty much fine, but yep. I think the real risk is once more countries opt out of the U.S. dollar system. We already mm-hmm. saw that with Russia. Russia got kicked off of SWIFT, and now they have their own. 
cryptocurrency that's backed by their gold reserves and their energy reserves and the energy mm -hmm. they produce on an ongoing basis. And we're already seeing China creating their own currency system. So, and then a lot of the biggest oil producers in the Middle East are now also selling their oil for yen or for mm -hmm. rubles or for other other types of currencies like even Bitcoin in some cases. And mm -hmm. so the more that the global currency system fractures into these different continents of like the Russia ruble continent and the, uh, you know, and the Chinese yen continent, the dollar's ability to inflate the currency without massive losses in the currency's value diminishes. And so I think we're already in this inevitable process of people opting out of the dollar, but it's going to take a while. You know, it could take 10 years for the dollar to like seriously get hit. And, and obviously right now the Fed has been tightening. It hasn't had the money printer on full blast. So dollars have been scarce and a lot of people have flocked to dollars for that reason. And so it's kind of like you either got to fully become subject to the dollar system, which is kind of what Europe is doing. Like they're just totally like a lackey of the US at this point. Mm -hmm. or you just totally opt out and you go like the Russia route or the route that China seems to be going and you kind of create your own currency because the U S dollar is backed by nothing other than people's faith in the dollar system and, you know, the government and army that backs it. There's no actual, like you can't exchange dollars for gold like you could before 1971. There's no fractional reserve requirement for banks. It's literally 0%. So it is built on nothing just like how FTX was built on nothing, but people haven't realized it yet. And, and mm -hmm. information may travel at the speed of light, but understanding does not. And people are going <laughs> to have to experience real pain to learn the lesson that you can't trust third parties without creating security holes and risks, risk of ruin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a scary one. At least the U S has a little more like trust, real trust in, in the, in the world and has more value than, you know, FTX. So it's not like the U S is as fragile as something like FTX, but fundamentally it's structured the same way. It's still built on a trust in the system. And if that trust is ever diminished to, you know, a, enough of a degree, then it can all come collapsing down. So that's definitely worth noting. And you never know what the trigger is going to be. Mm -hmm. FTX might have been fine if CZ from Binance had never sold all of his FTT tokens and created this downward spiral. Mm -hmm. But it's almost seems foreboding. Like what if one day, you know, a year or two from now, China decides one day, hey, we're just going to sell all of our US bonds all the debt we hold of the US. And then that could create a downward spiral of people's confidence in the US dollar currency. So you mm -hmm. can see how this same exact dynamic could play out. But, you know, like you mentioned, the US government is the most trusted third party there is. In the world of trusted third parties, US government is the top of the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Below that would be, I would say, major institutions in the US that are considered too big to fail. So like the big banks, the big credit card companies, you know, even like the stock stock exchanges, like New York Stock Exchange, like mm -hmm. these are all entities that are big enough that the government would bail them out if they were having risk of collapse, because 
it is you know the whole system relies on these these systems working and you know continuing mm -hmm. to function and so after that i would say then you get into all the new trusted third parties like luna celsius ftx blockfi 3ac those have already blown up but the next ones that are likely to blow up are the other big exchanges that dabble in scam coins like coinbase kraken um, and then also other scam coin tokens like Ethereum, Binance token, Hex, you know, I would say pretty much any crypto that's not Bitcoin is at risk mm -hmm. of the same collapse. And any exchange that isn't Bitcoin only that uses other crypto has major risk in other cryptos going to zero. And then they have a massive hole in their balance sheet. And then they're in the same position FTX was. So I think exchanges that are Bitcoin only are less risky because they don't have like, like Bitcoin's not going to go to zero in the same way FTT token would or Luna mm -hmm. would. But, you know, there's risks with all of these counterparty, all these counterparties. And so then the question is, what are the alternatives? Like, how can you actually live your life while minimizing counterparty risks? And it's, you know, there's the old school way of before there were, modern banking or you know anything like that the old school way is you just own things physically like you just have your own gold your energy your water your food and you self-custody it physically it's your own property and this is what i think most people assume all their property already is mm -hmm. but there's obviously risks to that as well right like if you have all of this gold in a in a you know locked up in a safe someone can come and they can they can take it by force like whoever has more power projection mm -hmm. can take it from you and it's not always easy to move it out you know in time especially when it's like has physical bulk behind it so while i think it's a good metaphor of like you can hold bitcoin just like how you can hold gold and it will keep its value over time mm -hmm. the key difference between bitcoin and gold is that bitcoin you can transmit anywhere across the world almost instantly so it's way harder to capture it really is more of an ethereal type of ownership where you can have 12 words in your head of your entire wealth mm -hmm. and you can carry that with you and if they kill you it dies with you like they can't steal it so that they, they don't it doesn't give them anything to kill you and even if they try to, to like torture it out of you whether it's <laughs> You know, just some common criminal who tries to torture it out of you or like a corrupt authoritarian government. You could have a decoy seed phrase, 12 words that are for some lesser amount. And then how are they going to know that that's not your whole stash? Or you could have multi-signature in different geographic areas. Mm -hmm. Or you could have a time lock so you literally can't unlock it until 20 years later. There's all of these tools. Many people would argue it's the first thing you can truly own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and there is definitely something nice about taking custody of your own assets that way. But it is it is a little freaky to think that if if you have enough and people know that you have a lot of Bitcoin or something else, then they could try to torture it out of you. Like that that's a scary prospect that um I think will deter some people. But I do wonder if there are some tools and and additional layers of security in place where you could really plead ignorance and like not actually know 
everything you need to know to like unlock your full wealth. Maybe you're partnered with with some random other person to have like a dual wallet. I'm just speculating right here. This might be a a bad idea, but. (laughs) No, no, that's that's a good practice. And that's, you know, considered multi-sig and you can do it with yourself or with a family member. And Mm -hmm. it's really easy. All you have to do is you order two hardware wallets, like two cold cards or two Blockstream Mm -hmm. Jades or two Trezors or one of, you know, two different types of hardware wallets. And when you're setting up your new wallet, you just select multi-signature rather than single signature. And then basically you have two passphrases that in order to unlock the Bitcoin, you need to enter both passphrases. It's not enough just to have one. Mm -hmm. And then you can have one of these wallets in Singapore, the other one in California, or you could have one of them with your lawyer and one of them with your brother. There's Mm -hmm. all types. Or you could do, you can have one with yourself that you control and then another with a more legitimate third party like NIDIG, which is Bitcoin only, or Unchained Capital, which is Bitcoin only. And the key mm-hmm. difference there is that you actually have one of the keys. So you can know for certain if there's any funny business going on. You can see on chain yeah. if they've sent the Bitcoin somewhere else, if they've sold it, if they've uh, you know lent out against it, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas what happened with FTX and Luna and a lot of these other collapses it was basically just Bitcoin IOUs. They didn't actually say, oh, this is the Bitcoin you own. Like Justin owns this exact UTXO right here. Instead, it was like they had a small amount of Bitcoin, but then they claimed that users owned far more Bitcoin. And then once the withdrawal cascade started, they didn't have enough to cover everyone's position. So I think transparent, multi-signature, collaborative custody is the way forward for people that do still want trusted third parties and, that's and they can choose exactly exist. yeah they can choose exactly who they want in that in their trusted third party circle so yeah totally and and you know for me personally i don't trust any corporation more than myself my family my close friends so mm-hmm. i would never go with even the most pristine bitcoin custodian like unchained capital even that, like, I wouldn't go for that because I would rather trust, I'd rather trust like you, like send you one mm-hmm. of my, uh, you know, multi-sig hardware wallets and then one for me and then one for, you know, someone mm-hmm. else in my life. But that I, I just, I mean, maybe that's a personal thing. Like I know some people are in different situations where right. maybe they don't have someone super trustworthy or they're in a hard situation or a war-torn country or whatever else. But even in that scenario, I think a good option is you have a hardware wallet, even if it's single signature, but then you can set up a decoy phrase. It's really hard to exploit Bitcoin when you follow best practices. Almost impossible. Well, that's uh, that's good design to, to completely <laughs> align incentives like that. It definitely requires a little more thought to, to start, but the end result is just a, a better and more secure system. So there's, there's a, a bit of a curve at first, but it, you know, there's a reason for that. Exactly. So maybe now we talk about a little bit about the different asset classes and what it means to self custody versus trusting third parties. So we already talked about crypto. I think the key takeaway there is that 
you can self-custody your crypto. You can have a ledger with Dogecoin and Ethereum and FTT token or whatever else on that. And it is better to self-custody your crypto altcoins than it is to just mm -hmm. keep it all on an exchange like FTX. But it's also kind of meaningless because I would argue that every crypto other than Bitcoin, or at least 99% of them, are decentralized in name only. Like they're not actually decentralized. And so it wouldn't help you if you had all your FTT tokens in self-custody and then you wake up the next day and FTT tokens go to zero because the whole thing was a, was a Ponzi scheme to begin with. Or mm -hmm. you could self-custody your Ethereum, but if you stake it, guess what? You can't withdraw or sell any of your Ethereum if it's been staked. They haven't even written the code to unstake your ETH. And they could change the rules tomorrow that makes it never be able to unstake or that doubles the supply. Like if you were holding Luna token when that collapse happened, overnight, the total supply of Luna 10Xs. So crypto, you should self-custody rather than keep on exchange, but it really is kind of meaningless because they can do funny business regardless. The only thing that can't have the protocol rules changed is Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin, you can meaningfully self-custody it and you should because not all Bitcoin is created equal. If you, for instance, had wrapped Bitcoin on Solana, it's down 80% in the last like day or two because Solana has all this exposed risk to FTX and Bitcoin that's wrapped on the Solana network has exposure to Solana. And you're, if you don't custody it, you're basically out of luck, like your Bitcoin's worth nothing. But if you have real Bitcoin that you self-custody and no one else holds the keys, there's no way. The only way anyone could take it from you is if they tricked you into giving them your seed phrase through a phishing mm -hmm. attack or something like that. But then the next one is uh, stocks and bonds. So obviously with stocks and bonds, there is no self-custody. Right, yeah. Unless you have a little like stock certificate. I wonder if that's technically <laughs> self-custody. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's kind of like collaborative custody with the U.S. Okay. legal system. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there is less risk. Basically, for stocks and bonds to fail, the U.S. Uh, fiat system would also have to fail. But, mm -hmm. you know, fiat system is going to fail eventually, but it, probably not for a while. You're probably safer off there than in most crypto assets. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you think there's any difference if you hold stocks in Vanguard versus Robinhood? Or do you think it's pretty much all the same because they're all regulated? And um, No, I, I think there's there's the the SIPC insurance and it's kind of the the brokerage equivalent of FDIC insurance. But again, it only goes up to a certain point. I forget exactly what the SIPC number is, but there are certain custodians that are much more trustworthy and more established than others. And, you know, the, the vanguards, the Charles Schwab's, you know, like the, the really big trusted. I, I, so I hesitate a little bit more with Charles Schwab because they're also in the fractional reserve banking um, system. But if it's a pure, brokerage or pure custodian, I feel like there's far less risk exposure there than 
someone who's also involved in the banking. So Interactive Brokers, another established, you know, trustworthy broker. Um, yeah. So if, if you're going to have yeah. stocks and bonds, you should use the most trusted custodian mm-hmm. like Vanguard. I think Vanguard and BlackRock are the two biggest corporations in the U.S. or maybe the world. But basically, Vanguard has all the stocks and bond and index fund management. They're like Mm -hmm. the main player there. And then BlackRock is the main player in real estate. And if either of them went down, Vanguard or BlackRock, that basically is curtains for the whole U.S. dollar fiat system. So they're not going to let those go down. So also, like we could talk about real estate. Is real estate really self-custody? Like, do you really own your house or is it collaborative custody with the government? And on any day, the government could increase your property taxes, implement eviction moratoriums as happened during COVID, Mm -hmm. could seize your house if they want to build some structure there, like a dam or a wall or, or whatever. So you don't really own your house. You're basically renting it from the government. Right. Yeah, that's a scary one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where it it seems like the last frontier of like full ownership, but really, you're right. It is a a dual ownership or a collaborative custody with <laughs> with the legal system in the U.S. government. So yeah, now let's talk about uh, cash. So cash is something yep. that a lot of quote unquote preppers will take out cash from the bank, you know, $500 at a time, whatever it is. And then they put it under their mattress and then they feel safe because if there was some run on the banks or, you know, internet outage or whatever event may happen, they at least have cash to pay their expenses for the next X amount of months. And I think there is some wisdom in that. If you do have some fixed expenses you need to pay to have cash on hand, may be a relatively smart thing to do but the main and you can self-custody it like you can actually have it physically in custody which is not the same with bank account deposits or real estate or stocks or bonds Mm -hmm. the the key risk is that at any point the government could end cash and there's already been some bills floated in congress to phase out physical cash and they might say oh it's because cash is too dirty We, we don't want to spread germs Or it may be like, well, it's just outdated. We're moving to this new great CBDC world and you don't need cash anymore. And so you could risk losing basically the value of your entire stash if you take custody of physical cash. Mm -hmm. Whereas no one can just outlaw Bitcoin all of a sudden or outlaw gold. There's always going to be people that are going to want to buy gold and that will want to buy Bitcoin, even if they're on the other side of the world. And obviously yeah. gold's got a much longer track record. So maybe we right. could talk about gold next. You could self-custody gold, food, mm-hmm. energy. And it's true, you can really self-custody these things, but they have the physical risk of you're creating your own kind of physical honeypot that just like how there was Executive Order 6102 to confiscate everyone's gold, there could be a similar executive order to confiscate physical assets. So obviously you're better off with, like if you have to flee the country, it's a lot easier to remember 12 words than it is to, you know, stick a gold bar up your butt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, it's much more mobile. That that's the nice thing about electronic and digital assets is is you can move much more easily with those things. And there there is something to be said about, you know, if the world collapsed entirely, the physical assets would probably be the most useful things at first. Like it I do wonder if if digital assets would be useful in the case of a world collapse. Um, what are your, what are your yeah. thoughts there? Like, um, no, that's, that's a really important point. And this gets into the gold bug version vision of the future versus the Bitcoiner mm-hmm. vision of the future. So okay. the gold, the gold bug vision of the future is that eventually the whole fiat system is going to crash. And then we go back to law of the jungle where let's say like the internet goes out, there's World War Three between China and Russia or, or in America or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden you don't no longer have, you know, the trucks bringing in the food to various areas. You no longer have internet, you no longer have running water and power and utilities. And it's true in that scenario, it's way more important. Like the number one thing that's important is water. Not having water will kill you sooner than anything else. Mm-hmm. Then not having food, you need to have food. If you're somewhere cold, energy, not having energy could also kill you. You could freeze to death. And then I would say the next most important thing is means of protection. If you don't have any guns or way to defend yourself, some hungry band of, of uh, people next door is probably going to take everything you own. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how much gold you have or food or energy or whatever, if you can't defend it. Now, that's the that's the gold bug vision of the future. And I would say that vision only is reasonable if the internet never comes online again. And it seems impossible to me. I can't even think of a scenario where the internet literally never comes back online and humans are still around. Because like, you could always rinky-dink some network together. It might take like 10 years, 20 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. But... I don't see any scenario where we're permanently in like the pre 1900s. Yeah. I just don't see, I mean, maybe it's possible, but it's kind of like, if that happens, then who cares anyways, I'll do the best we can. And you're not going to worry about losing money on Bitcoin or real estate or stocks in Mm -hmm. that scenario. Yeah. Because like if, if there was a, a catastrophic situation, even like a one super volcano eruption that destroys a lot of, the earth and a lot of you know the species on earth or an asteroid impact that does something similar or potentially even worse either way there's still going to be internet nodes that are satellites most likely i would i imagine now that there are satellites yeah there's there's going to be something that's removed from the destruction of earth to the point where they're like, this will be possible to get back online. Um, so it's just a matter of building the receivers. Cause you know, if you have a bunch of satellites up in space roaming around and nothing to receive the signal or send the signal back, you know, that, that would be problematic, but it, it would take a lot. I mean, true species extinction. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, or some, malevolent ai or alien who's like specifically trying to destroy every satellite that runs the internet every receiver every Mm -hmm. server 
And it's just not, it's not even worth worrying about in, in, from my perspective. So the Bitcoiner view of the future is that, look, assuming there is some internet, even if it stops for two years and then comes back online, like it doesn't matter if there's major catastrophes. The reality is we're not going back to the 1900s. We're moving towards the future. Mm-hmm. And in that future, it is vital to not have exposure to the legacy systems that are doomed to eventually fail. And the way to do that is to have bearer assets, assets that only you control. And Bitcoin is the most pristine of those. But I think there is also something to be said for having your own resources, natural resources, knowing your rancher so you have someone that you can trade with. If you get hungry, you can give him Bitcoin or give him you know, the tomatoes you grow or whatever it is in exchange for milk and, and steak and whatever, like all those things are still important. But the reality is now we have a way, we have a money that's not controlled by any state, just like how gold wasn't controlled by any government. Everyone just Mm -hmm. got paid in gold, saved in gold, used it as money. And now we have the same thing, except you can transport that digital gold anywhere on earth instantly because now everything runs on the internet and that's not going to change. We're not going back to pre-internet days. Like, it's just not <laughs> yeah. going to happen unless we all, unless we all die. And then who cares? It doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I see a lot of parallels in this conversation to last week's conversation of statism and libertarianism. You know, it's if, if you can, if you can own your own resources to the greatest degree possible, then you're going to be in a better position to handle any sort of system disruption. And we're, I mean, we're living in a world where we rely, like we've been talking mostly about, you know, the, the assets, monetary assets, and we've, we've touched a little bit on physical assets like gold and some commodities, but there, there are a lot of other, (laughs) a lot of other third parties we rely on. If we just think about our, like you said, water being very important, Mm -hmm. We rely on the the system that delivers us water at the, you know, at turning on a faucet or, you know, energy by turning on a light switch. We're extremely reliant on third parties. And the more we can move away from that, because, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as someone who probably relies on third parties for 90% of my day-to-day needs, right? Or yeah. even more. Um, and... It's, it's just something to think about and something that I, I need to actively work towards a little more than I have been. Because if there is system collapse, and we, we live in a, in a world where even just the food system, we rely on a few places that produce a majority of certain kinds of food that is the backbone for everything else. And if, if food supply is disrupted through environmental issues through anything else like that that will disrupt everything and if we don't have a better more decentralized system that isn't so dependent on certain paths of this supply chain or certain you know nodes in this supply network it's not gonna be a good situation so totally yeah Yeah, that's why i'm very bullish on localism on having Mm -hmm. more more of what you need produced locally. Mm-hmm. And so there's not these fragile dependencies and kind of like the whole world used to be just in time production, maximum efficiency. And now we're moving more towards 
realizing the need for robustness and redundancy mm-hmm. and having some having some buffer space in in case things go wrong or there's some kind of disruption. And I think you're also right that no man is an island. Like we're never going to get to total self-sufficiency where you have no trusted third parties at all. We're always going to have some reliance on trusted third parties to some degree. Mm-hmm. But the key is to minimize your exposure. And like you said, to move a little bit in the direction of self-sovereignty as opposed to just blindly trusting third parties with everything. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we can talk about some of the tips for how to minimize exposure to trusted third parties. And you know, one area we didn't touch on is your data, like all the data that is stored about you mm-hmm. and how that data can be used against you or can be hacked or leaked or you know, used for um, exploitation or, or very blackmail, things like that. Mm-hmm. And most people do rely entirely on trusted third parties for their data. And so I would just give a few pieces of advice. One is your browser data. So a lot of anything you type in on Google or anything you search, that's all being stored somewhere if you use a non-private browser. But there are better browsers out there like Brave, which regular Brave is more private than Google incognito mode. And then the private Brave option is way more private than any Google browser or Safari or whatever else. And then not Mm -hmm. only that, but Brave has built-in VPN, virtual private network, and built-in Tor. So you can open up the Tor browser, use virtual private network. So they wouldn't even know Mm -hmm. that you're in, uh, you know, they wouldn't know that I'm in Los Angeles. They would just see, oh, he's from Ireland or something. And it's (laughs) a different IP address every single time. Yep. So I use that for browsing and I feel a lot more secure than when I used to use Google Chrome. And I think Apple is still better than Google as far as your mobile device storage. It used to be the case that everyone just had their health information stored with all of these various healthcare providers and they're always getting mm-hmm. hacked and the data's leaked because they're running on these ancient systems and they hardly know how to use computers. But mm-hmm. now Apple has their Apple Health, and you can store your information there, and then you can just share it with whatever doctor you go to. So I think that model of having your own data and then deciding who you want to share with and when is the path forward Mm -hmm. rather than just blindly allowing every big company to track you and manage your data wherever you go. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. And there, there is definitely something to be said about the choice because I don't have a bunch of hard drives with all of my data. You know, I, I do it. I just got an Apple watch recently and I, I thought I, I resisted it for so long, but now that I have it, I, I love the Apple health features and it's, it's nice to, you know, see my, my sleep stages and my resting heart rate and see how it changes throughout the day. It's just, it's something that I think is really nice to see, but I am trusting Apple to not share that data with people that they shouldn't be sharing it with. And I think there, there's also something to be said about the regulations that are in place. So the fact that there is, there are laws like um, HIPAA that protect health data that, you know, help. It, it's just one of those things that helps 
us have trust in third parties. Um, again, it's collaborative trust because we're trusting that the legal system will enforce HIPAA compliance. There's something to be said for responsible regulation. And there's a reason why yeah. there are securities laws, because there have been a yeah. lot of people over the years and decades and centuries who have scammed people out of their entire net worth. And so, yeah, the libertarian in me is like, we don't need any regulation. Let the free market decide mm -hmm. and the bad actors will be washed out of the system and the good actors will stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. And I strongly do believe that that will work. Mm -hmm. But given that there is such a lack of knowledge and given that we already do have things like the SEC, I would just say that the SEC needs to do its job. It's kind of crazy that they have not approved a spot Bitcoin ETF, which would be the, the best way to invest in Bitcoin through a trusted third party is a spot ETF mm -hmm. that's regulated that basically has the same risk profile of like stocks and bonds as far as like failing entirely, which is pretty low. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they haven't gone after any of these clearly centralized crypto Ponzi schemes, it's just a little suspicious. Do they really have the investor's yeah. best interest at heart or are they just trying to do what they can to make the fiat system survive for another day? Mm -hmm. And they probably see Bitcoin as a threat. So that's why they're not providing the safeguards that are needed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, and you're, and you're yeah. right that like Apple's not necessarily trustworthy. So the super sovereign individual <laughs> case would be you actually have your own, like you said, your own hard drive, your own server. And there's this famous quote that cryptographers always bring up, which is the cloud is just someone else's computer. You're just trusting AWS or Google's servers or Microsoft servers or whatever. So there are companies like Start9 where you can actually have your own server in your house. Mm -hmm. And I think that'll be a good option for some people, but most people are realistically going to trust third parties. And it just comes down to minimizing your surface area of risk and being as responsible for the, for the types of third parties that matter the most, mm -hmm. which is storing your wealth, I think is probably the biggest one. Yep. Yeah, but yeah, now maybe we should get into the future scenarios. Let's start with the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. So what is the worst case scenario for if you do trust third parties? And then what's the worst case scenario if you totally don't trust third parties? So I think if you do trust third parties, then the, the worst case is something along the lines of a similar FTC, or sorry, a, a similar collapse that we saw with FTX happen with the central banks. And then once, once the central bank collapse happens, the, there's a story probably that would be pushed in this scenario where it wasn't it wasn't the result of a lack of competence with the central banks it's more that the story would be it was decentralization and not enough regulation so then the this is sort of the trojan horse for something like cbdc to be introduced that's completely regulated and would increase the reliance on a trusted well 
I, totally. I will not say trusted third party anymore, but just a th- it'll. Yeah, anytime increase. we say trusted third party, just imagine it's tongue in cheek. Like there are no trusted third parties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that could be used as the Trojan horse to, to usher something that would basically reduce individual sovereignty to almost nothing. And the, the fragility of that system would be hard to overstate. The amount of surveillance is hard to overstate. It's, it's just not a good situation. And I think, I think the, the collapse of the current banks would be, you know, it, it would be spun in a way to make that possible. Um, so, yeah, and we're, we're already seeing that narrative come out in the midst of this FTX debacle where people are yeah. saying, this is a this is the fault of there not being enough regulation in crypto, mm-hmm. and therefore we need to really throw down the hammer. And to some degree, like that, they actually should, like especially yeah. for the most corrupt Ponzi schemes out there. Mm-hmm. But the problem is when they lump in Bitcoin, which is like the actual innovation in the space, and if they try to basically outlaw that and then only have their own CBDC government approved. Or maybe they mm-hmm. co-opt Ethereum and Ethereum is kind of the new like CBDC platform. That mm-hmm. scenario, it wouldn't actually work because you can't ban Bitcoin. You can only ban yourself from Bitcoin. And you could always get around those regulations by selling your CBDC for some approved good and then trading that good for Bitcoin. Like there's always a black market in the Soviet Union. And like anytime there has been command and control economy where you're only allowed to buy certain things there has been a black market so they'll never be able to totally outlaw bitcoin it's just not possible Mm -hmm. but what they could do is they could if you trust third parties you could wake Mm -hmm. up one day and essentially all your assets are gone and all you have instead are cbdc's and the cbdc's only allow you to spend on approved things like, you know, you can't buy meat, you can't buy oil, you can only spend it on low carbon emission things. And they have certain rules. So you basically give up all of your freedom, all of your sovereignty, every transaction is being monitored and graded on your social credit score. And then depending on your social credit score, you may or may not be able to fly out of the country, you may or may not be able to get a loan or buy a house or, or join a company or whatever else. So it really is this totalitarian world where basically one one mega trusted third party kind of takes over the reins of everything. And Mm -hmm. then we're all in this like world prison, basically, because they they control all the monetary supply. And, you know, like I said, Mm -hmm. like, I don't think that's actually feasible with Bitcoin. Like you could always escape to some country that has more fair laws. But that is like the worst case scenario down the trusted third party route. Mm hmm. But yeah, what, I mean, what would you say is the worst case? Like if you are fully sovereign, like what's the worst thing that could happen to you if you don't trust third parties? So I think there's, there's a few things here. There are some, some big downsides that, that could happen if, if you're a fully sovereign individual. And you've touched on this before, but if you self-custody everything and if you don't take all the precautions possible, like it's you, you're going to be more at risk for personal harm 
at the, you know, just at the whims of thieves that might try to steal from you. Like if you have, I, I just think there's always going to be a, a nefarious side to this where there, there's going to be people that are hurt because they, they, you know, they self custody everything. And then maybe somebody that a bad actor picks up on the case that this, you know, someone self custodies everything and they might get tortured until they give them everything. Right. And, and they might be able to still the, the person that's doing the torturing might understand that there are dummy wallets and you'll just be held until right. you give them Michael everything. Saylor, yes. They know he has a large amount of Bitcoin. So the dummy wallet might not work for someone yes. as, as public of a persona as Michael Saylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, for your average Joe, yep. I think you probably have pretty low risk, but yeah, you're right. I think that's the biggest risk for if you don't trust third parties mm-hmm. is someone coming after you specifically, whether it's the government or a common thief or whatever. The other risk is just you screw up. Yep. You mistype something and it's very low level of risk for this if you follow best practices, but there is some risk. Like you could get some email from a Nigerian prince saying, hey, give me one Bitcoin, I'll give you two back. And then if you're stupid enough to enter your seed, then you lost all your Bitcoin. Um, Or a more advanced phishing attack where they send you an email saying, hey, this is Trezor, we're upgrading. Please enter your seed phrase to upgrade to the latest security Mm -hmm. protocol. And then if you're dumb enough to enter your seed phrase, then yeah, you're you're out of luck. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess from, from a philosophical standpoint, I'd rather die by my own sword than yep. have my kingdom swept out from underneath me while I'm sleeping. Right. So I would always rather have the risk of personal responsibility than the risk of someone else mismanaging my wealth or my property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one more thing I'll, I'll add to the, the worst case here is if let's just say there, um, I think people might go too far or someone could go too far in the self-sovereignty route and they didn't trust a third party that actually is trustworthy and actually has some real benefits. And this might be to the extreme where they try to produce all of their own food, try to produce all of their own water. And then they're very locally, like almost too locally dependent. Whereas if there are local Mm. disruptions, then there's no, um, there's no way to overcome the local disruptions if you're not right. somewhat, you know, diversified. Like there's still something to be said about what, uh, good diversification. And if you're too hyper-localist, then you might be too dependent on local environmental conditions. And, you know, that that leads to its own fragility. Yeah. Um, and you might like miss out on some some really... <laughs> really nice benefits and also be at the whims of, you know, local disruptions. So there's, yeah, that I mean, that, that reminds me of when Vitalik called Bitcoiners, the weird mountain man fantasy, <laughs> as he has this vision of Bitcoiners Rambo style living up in the woods alone, uh-huh. like a hermit. They've got their little stream, their little Bitcoin miner and all their stuff. And yeah, if yeah. you live like that, like a hermit in the wilderness, and then you get a bacterial infection and you don't have antibiotics and there's no hospital nearby. 
-hmm. like that is a real risk. So it's true. No man is an island. And that's why I think you shouldn't go the route of just mistrusting every, everyone. Like it's important to have good relationships and a strong community. And I also love the phrase, don't trust, verify. Right. Yeah. You shouldn't just blindly trust whomever. You should have a real reason of why you consider this third party to be trustworthy uh, more so than other third parties. Okay. Yeah. But now let's, let's get into the best case scenario. Best case scenario. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about economies of scale, um, and there, if you, and it also allows for specialization. And I think that ultimately that's kind of the same thing as economies of scale. But if if you have third parties that just are great at what they do, and they offer great services, and they protect what you need, and they supply you with what you need, that's kind of you know, the, the ideal world when, um, where third parties exist, like they, they offer real value and they're not just grifting or they're not rent seeking. It's, it's just valuable. And, and there's always going to be a cost to third parties, right? Like there, you might have to pay some monthly fee. You might have to pay some other, I don't know. There's there are some fees associated with you know trusting a third party, but what you get in return should be more valuable than what you're paying, right? So like I, if I wanted to produce all of my own food, in in the diverse kinds of food that I eat, the the cost to run that and make all of that food myself would be totally absurd right? Like all the different kinds of vegetables, the harvesting of those vegetables and fruits and nuts and meat, like all of, all of that just wouldn't be possible without third parties to kind of manage that system externally for me. I, I know there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, sometimes cloud providers get a lot of hate, but I like not having to have my own server racks at home. I like just logging in remotely to a, a server in AWS and doing what I need to do. And there's there, there are really great third-party systems out there. And I think in the best case, you know, the systems are completely aligned, or sorry, the incentives are completely aligned in the system. So there, there can't be the grifting and the rent-seeking that does pop up. And the, these Ponzi schemes don't, they're not possible. And I think this is something that would need to be achieved through regulation to a degree. Um, and also like, also less regulation. It's weird. Like there, it, <laughs> it, there's sometimes there needs to be more regulation, but in other cases, like sometimes the regulation is the problem. If you just let the free market do its thing, it'll converge onto a better solution. So, yeah, no, I, think that's, I think that's spot on. And I think what you're getting at is kind of the, the short term of regulation probably are good in the short term while people are figuring out what's the deal with crypto. Is it different than Bitcoin? Where can I trust and where shouldn't I trust? But in the long term, it's all about realigning incentives with the free market. And what has been the case up until now in the last several decades has been it's a fiat system. And so to do well in the fiat system, 
it's not just that you create the best product you possibly can and get paid for it for value. It's being close to the money printer. And so if you can be an organization that is seen as necessary for the functioning of the money printer and the people that benefit the most from the money printer, then you're basically, uh, you, you become like too big to fail. And so it's mm -hmm. more about that whole system keeping itself alive than what's actually best for people. But mm -hmm. over time, I mean, I would say my best case scenario is Ray Dalio's beautiful deleveraging, hmm. where we're going to have to inflate away our debt. That's the only realistic path forward. So inflation's going to run hot. But the best thing that trusted third parties can do, like the SEC, is to slowly and naturally transition people towards Bitcoin and away from these unregistered security crypto tokens. And the best way he could do that is if he allows for a spot Bitcoin ETF, he clearly marks these other crypto Ponzi's like FTX and Binance and Ethereum as unregistered securities, and therefore basically tells institutional investors, hey, you shouldn't invest in these, you should invest in that. I don't think that's necessary for Bitcoin to succeed mm -hmm. and a more sovereign individual reality to emerge, but it would definitely help things along if there was regulatory clarity of what is and what is not essentially a Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. And then over time, the US dollar would continue to devalue. It will move away as the sole global reserve currency. But at the very same time, Bitcoin will become more and more common as a means of international transaction settlement and as mm -hmm. a medium of exchange, as a unit of account, uh, and as a store of value. And so you can kind of just have this beautiful value of the dollar is decreasing while the Bitcoin value is increasing and we separate money and state, but the U.S. government and the U.S. in general is still kind of leading the world because mm -hmm. we had the best position on the board last game and now we're leading this new game. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the people who are closest to the money printer want to keep that power alive of printing money and choosing winners and losers. Mm -hmm. And it's really a battle of adoption. If enough insiders can see the light of the benefits of separation of money and state, then we could have a very, like I said, a beautiful deleveraging, an easy transition mm -hmm. where it's not like all of a sudden bonds collapse and bank accounts get wiped and CBDCs get introduced. It's more just like a slow burn of people get used to 10% inflation and then therefore they store in Bitcoin, Bitcoin goes up as the dollar goes down. And if I trusted third parties and I thought Gensler, the SEC, the Federal Reserve, Congress, everyone just purely had our best interests in mind and was very competent and understood all the issues well, I would, I would favor that outcome. Mm -hmm. But I will say recent history has not given me much confidence that this is going to be the most likely scenario. Well, how about we lead right into the most likely scenarios? <laughs> most likely scenario. I can go first. I think that the, the most likely is kind of a, a combination of the best and worst case scenarios, just depending on where in the world you are and who you are. I think it's going to be possible for people to opt out of, you know, 
third parties in you know at least the third parties that should not be trusted and um there there will be more regulation in the crypto space which isn't necessarily a bad thing in the short run um i think that at the same time there's going to be a lot of propaganda might be too strong of a word but also it might not be there might I think that there's going to be a, a huge push towards the CBDC. Like it, we already know it's happening. And mm-hmm. if we get to that route, there's going to be a big chunk of the world that is probably operating on a digital currency. And, and maybe that starts more in Europe. I think the U S is probably going to be insulated from that for a bit. But once that happens, once that currency is like adopted, and mass, it's just going to be, it's going to be a war between the leading currencies. And it, it always is a war between the leading currencies, but there, there might be more control of the CBDC in a way that can maybe disrupt the position of the US dollar. And it does seem like the US dollar is going to be on top for the foreseeable future, but a Ponzi scheme can only run for so long and it's going to need like it. If we don't have the beautiful, yeah, I mean, there might be a way to do a beautiful deleveraging and maybe that really is what, (laughs) what take, like it might be tapering a Ponzi to a degree, but can that go on forever? Right. Like it's It's going to go in cycles and, I don't know. It seems like the most likely case is that there will be sovereign individuals. There will be, you know, U.S. dollar will be on top for a while, but then there's also going to be a push for global centralized currencies. Um, yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're pretty spot on. I would say in the short term, my most likely scenario is that we haven't seen all the fallout from this FTX debacle yet. Mm-hmm. BlockFi just today or yesterday stopped withdrawals. And there are so many companies that have exposure to FTX. So I'll just name the ones that I know that I've heard of before. Mm-hmm. Three commas, Consensus, DeFi Land, Lido, Masari Crypto, Polygon, Solana, um, Voyager, Ledger circle i could go on and on but basically there are all of these firms that have counterparty risk against ftx and they're going to start dropping like flies one by one just like how we saw firms drop like flies after luna went down Mm -hmm. and this is going to create more and more of an impetus for regulators to crack down on crypto in general and i do think at some point the bond market is also going to have its moment of being at risk of collapse. It just happened in the UK pension fund. I think eventually that's going to happen in the US. And at that point, I think there will be an attempt to introduce CBDCs. It's almost like the battle of the bulge in the fiat system. It's like kind of like the last big push before the, the moment of reckoning of which way we go. Mm-hmm. And although I will say the optimist in me and which I would also say is the most likely is that when they introduce CBDCs, that will be the end of fiat and the true beginning of the Bitcoin era. Because I think a lot of people are going to realize not only how horrific a CBDC future would be, but how much the current system is built on sand 
and there will be every reason for anyone with means and with a brain to switch to the Bitcoin world. The only people who would, who would by default join the CBDC world are people who are completely relying on the centralized government system already. So if you mm-hmm. already are dependent on welfare, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, like you literally can't live without government handouts, you basically are going to have no choice but to get the stimulus through the CBDC and then use the CBDC for all of your payments. That's what it will seem like to you. Now, you always obviously have the option of opting out into Bitcoin, you know, starting your mm-hmm. own business, becoming a real part of the free market. Or mm-hmm. maybe you have a friend or a family member who's a Bitcoiner who can kind of help you make that transition. So I could see basically once CBDCs are introduced, either that's going to be the nail in the coffin for fiat and everyone will transition to Bitcoin, or it'll be like a bifurcation of the system. And there mm-hmm. will be some people that are totally at the behest of the state. That's how they get their money to pay for food, but they are also totally controlled. And then other people that choose a sovereign individual route, and you might have to move to a different state. You might have to move to a different country, depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. But you have that option. You, you can take your future into your own hands. And I hope that there is no bifurcation. I hope that the whole world can just move on to sound money standard like we had throughout all of history up until the Fed was created in 1913. Mm-hmm. But I do put some possibility that we have a, two, a two-tier system, basically. The third trusted third-party system and the sovereign individual system. And we might have that for several decades. Mm-hmm. And it probably depends on what this, the service of the third party is too. Well, it'll be stimmy checks, right? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people, if you get yeah. 500 CBDC dollars a month or whatever, you'll use CBDCs. A lot of people will do that. Yeah. That's how they'll introduce universal basic income is exactly. probably that way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, I guess just to to bring it home, I would say the final lessons or takeaways are don't trust third parties. Trusted third parties are security holes. You should self-custody your own Bitcoin. Don't keep it on Coinbase or Kraken or whatever else. Keep it in your own hardware wallet. The ones I would recommend are Blockstream, Jade, and Coldcard. And I would just say the best advice for the next 10 years is to Buy Bitcoin and hold your own keys, earn more than you spend and save the rest as a bearer asset. And if you don't want to go all in on Bitcoin because you're still figuring that out, I would recommend gold is better. But, you know, fundamentally do your own research. Like don't trust anything I say or that you say. Don't trust any third parties, including us. You know, become a sovereign individual, I guess is the, the whole point of it. Yeah, I think that's a, those are all great points. Yeah, well, thank you all for tuning in. This has been What Is Currently Happening and What Will Inevitably Happen. The past, the present, and the future. Present and the